Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Yumon Tsang, CEO and co-founder of Churn Zero. In this episode, Yumon shared his experience building and exiting three companies and the lessons he brought with him when starting Churn Zero. We also touched on his pragmatic approach to entrepreneurship and the naming of his company. We finished off with a discussion on net revenue retention and how the market's perception has changed on this metric over time. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. How do you build a habit-forming product? You need to invest. And we saw these, these different... You don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest-growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Yuman, welcome to the Glad to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Yuman is the founder and CEO of Churn Zero, a customer success platform helping customer success teams to better understand their customers and reduce churn. Yuman started out his career in product management at companies like Oracle and Xerox before founding a series of companies where three of them were actually acquired. In his last role before founding Churn Zero, he was the CEO of OutMarket, now known as iContact. So my first question for you, Yuman, is what keeps driving you to start new companies? Starting a new company. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Actually, I thought about it really hard before I started Turn Zero. And the answer is, it's boring. Is I just needed to. That's what I want to do. Andrew, I think maybe you're similar, right? And once you become an entrepreneur, really just the whole starting process, the creativity around that, the energy around that is something that you want to see over and over again. I, my guess is that there's another couple of new startups in me before it's all over. Yeah, just in, just instinct, Andrew. Yeah, I think it's that they need to want also be creative, at least for me. I think it feels like uh, I get a lot of joy from starting something from you, trying to problem solve in a space that's that's interesting. And yeah, it's a weird one to explain for myself as well, because like, now I'm a company four or five and it's, why do you- You can't explain it. You, can, yeah. you can't explain it, Andrew, right? Yeah, it's not, always the, it's not always the best decision, but you got to do it. Yeah, exactly. And there's yeah. times when you like- Swearing at yourself, like, why the hell did I do this again? But then <laughs> other parts of you couldn't help it. It's like, yeah, nice. So talk us a little bit about your background and history so far. So I mentioned you started out as um, project manager first at Regional Plan Association, and then you went to Oracle and uh, Xerox. From there, like, what got you to found your first company? What was it? It's like, as a product manager at Xerox, you decided now, okay, and this was 95, yeah. 96, I want to start a company. Yeah, yeah. So I started in a totally different sector. I was an urban planner and uh, 
great. It was a great job, but I realized that there are certain jobs where like urban planning, where it takes decades to see the fruits of your, and then I said, oh, I'm too impatient for that. And so that's when I decided to go into technology, right? Because technology is faster moving. The things that you do today, you can see an impact the weeks from now. And I actually went and started a company called, I started at a company called Brio. Brio was ultimately um, bought by Oracle. So down the line, and I caught the bug, right? I caught the tech bug. And then from then, and it never really occurred to me to actually start a company. I grew up as a son, you know, of immigrants and starting like a restaurant or starting small business was always something that I thought I would do, but starting a tech company felt a little out of the, my realm, but that was when the internet was really coming along. I had met a great co-founder, a technical co-founder. And we really didn't know anything. If we had known what was going on, we wouldn't have started it. I think naivety is a great way to start a company. And so I learned enough from Brio. They were great entrepreneurs there that that inspired me to start my first company. And my co-founder and I started a company. The dawn of uh, when browsers were coming up, Netscape and IE, and we built a browser extension. And it was really, once I got that bug, I couldn't get it. I, I couldn't turn away. And what was that company doing exactly? You mentioned it was a browser extension. Um... Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you back when uh, we used to pay $2.95 an hour for internet access over, over phone lines. And so this is, by the way, this is the greatest product I ever built. I, I will not build a product better than this. Uh, super clever. And it was uh, basically, it was an offline browser. So the middle of the night, 3 a.m., everybody had one phone line. So you were either on the internet. If you were on the internet, you couldn't take phone calls. If you were taking phone calls, you couldn't be on the internet. And you had to pay $2.95. So expensive, inconvenient. So our extension would every night, 4 a.m., go out, get on the internet while you were asleep, and then download all your subscriptions to, the, to all the things that you were reading uh, so that in the morning, it was all cached on, on your computer. So one, you didn't have to pay $2.95 per hour, right? You can actually, while you were reading and everything happened really quickly because the internet was super slow then. So it was a great product, won all kinds of awards, the best product of the year. We ended up selling it to a company called Traveling Software. Then we actually put it into boxes that was sold at computer software stores that people would buy for 50 bucks and then, you know, take it home and install mm-hmm. it. It sounds like so weird listening to how this, like, became a business as well today when we know the internet and everything's almost, it's almost become free, but definitely yeah. these different innovations over time as technology has advanced where businesses grew and then became redundant after a while is also an interesting trend. I, I think my lesson from there is you learn lessons at all your startups from yeah. all your startups. And that lesson was really the shift in business model was an interesting, can hurt any, anyone. And you were talking about free and, and so from paid software to free software was a big shift that happened at that time that was, hey, you got to watch out for things like that. So when SaaS came along, SaaS blew out on-prem. That was a huge business model shift. You always have to watch business model shift. And who's who knows what's going to happen after SaaS, right? You know, now we charge per user and now everyone is thinking about consumption-based uh, models, right? So it's, well, consumption-based models take over SaaS. So I think business model changes is a big thing that you always have to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think SaaS was an extremely big uh, shift and change in the market. And it's where many great businesses now like have been born out of at the end of it as well, like Trend Zero that you're currently building today as well. So lesson one was there. Then you went on, actually went back to Brio Technology as director of product management, lasted a couple of years and then got going again, got the bug. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Next company, Boxit. What did you do? Uh, so Boxit was a basically they, we, were, we were creating automated fan sites. It was a great idea. So all you had to do, this is what we did. There was two of us, and there was only two of us. And all we had to do was we had to give our machine. So we created a machine learning uh, website creator. So all you had to do is give it a, a Wikipedia entry for a popular topic. Sports teams were often that. So let's just say here I'm in Washington, D.C. The Washington Nationals is, a, is a, let's call it yeah, the Washington Nationals. You just gave it the Wikipedia definition and then our system learned what it was, what it meant to be the Washington Nationals, searched all the keywords that were unique and then we built out a fan site for the Washington Nationals. So podcasts, videos, blog posts, news posts, all on one site. And then depending on what people read and linked on and learned, it became things moved up and down in the rankings. And it just created a fan site for everybody automatically. And we had thousands, I mean, between the two of us, we had 5,000 fan sites running on box sets. Okay. And you were running that for about three years. What happened to box sets? So box set, we had 2 million daily users and it was, it was advertising, it was advertising supported. And we just felt we were chasing advertising dollars, which was not a great way to go. And back then, when you got to a million, they said, well, you really needed 2 million. Oh, when you got to 2 million, you really needed 5 million uh, investors. So we actually pivoted that. So it was actually a great product, but we pivoted to Engine 140, uh, which was a B2B product that basically focused only on social media because we were really, we were really good on social media. And we took the same technology and said, show me all the experts on all the topics. So in other words, instead of doing fan sites, we actually went to Twitter, which was new at the time and said, hey, if somebody's interested in, say, podcasting, find me everybody who's interested in podcasting, who they are, how do you interact with them, who to follow and whatnot. And that became a real super popular product that then we sold to Vocus and I joined Vocus as the CMO there. Very nice. It's actually similar. Like one of the ideas I experimented with at some point was the ability to create a website from your Facebook uh, page and use Facebook as a CMS. So all you had to do was add the URL to your Facebook page and then you got a nice website and you could add your own custom yeah. domain to it. And uh, then the back end was managed by Facebook. Interesting. And then you moved as well. So th there was one other company in between that I saw and the I was going to ask a question on this as well. Boxit, you pivoted into Engine 140, acquired by Vocus. But then on the other side, you had another company called Biz360 that you've been running since about 2000 to 2010. And first question is like, how do you run two companies at the same time? And then second one is, uh, what were they doing? So I started Biz360 before Boxat. And that uh, was, so Biz360 was a marketing analytics company. Another fantastic company did quite well, sold to, had a very nice outcome. Basically, we said, hey, you have all this internal information about your company. You know exactly what's going on, leads. So basically, it was very, you quantified your internal metrics extremely well. But how do you quantify your external metrics? And what I mean by that is that we actually went out and said, hey, look, this is everything that's being written about you in the press, on social, on blogs, and not only to grab all that information, so we basically get all the clips that were written about you, then we would score them for what a positive, negative, neutral, how much of it was being read by you. We had statistics on who read it. And so we would give you metrics on your brand, how strong it was, and how was it doing against your competitors. 
So it was really, we were super early to that space, right? Before we were competing with what was known as clipbooks at the time. So clipbooks was, I don't know, you probably have never seen these, but you would walk into an office, sit down in the lobby, and there'll be like a big book, probably hundreds of pages long, where you would flip through, it'll be all the articles written by you. It'd be basically somebody would print them all out. They would scan them and then print them all out. And we were the digital, we started as a digital version of that. And then we added analytics on top of it. And so Biz360 was a company that probably before it was acquired was about eight years. And the last two years of it, I was on, on the board. I wasn't running it actively. And that's when I started BoxSat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I think it's incredibly difficult to run one company and then two at the same oh, yeah. time. Agreed. Yeah. Nice. And so it sounds like you've had uh, reasonably good success with the, all of these companies. What would you say is like the single denominator, one of the main reasons you feel that you've had these successes? Because I think like you hear a lot of entrepreneurs and like the typical story is I tried two, three, four things, they all failed and then had this overnight success. But it sounds like you've had more of a career of wins along the way. And what do you think has been the thing that's helped you along these, like this journey? Yeah, I, I think I certainly have my, my, my share of wins and losses. I, one of the things I've realized is that you, sh- you should be aware of what your company is capable of. If you listen hard, your company will tell you, hey, this is really what's going on. Don't, I can be very big or, hey, this is maybe a small, you know, product that you really need to find a partner for. And so I think you, I, I think a good entrepreneur has big ambition, huge creativity, and also got, have to be practical, right? You really need to know what this company is capable of and then also, and then steer it the right way. So I think too many people think that everything they do will be the next Facebook, the next Google, and that's just simply not true. And uh, now you may actually run into one. If you run into one, you better run it that way. But it's uh, be aware of what's a logical place for that company. And you don't often know when you start, you don't often know, but within a year, within two years, you really have a good idea. I mean, I'll give you an example, Andrew. I think Return Zero, it, we're, we're, we're building this to be a very large company, right? Because our internal metrics are telling us that internal metrics from sort of customer acquisition, onboarding, renewal, expansion is telling us that we are there's acceleration in the marketplace and, and we can be many times the way, uh, the, the, the many times the, uh, the bigger than we can today. As an example, Angel 140, when we started that company, we said, all right, in order for Angel 140, which we built a Twitter analysis engine on, it's like in order for us to be successful, we would have to build a Facebook analysis engine. We would have to build a LinkedIn analysis engine. And are we geared to do And so there was either we partner with somebody who can use our technology, or we can raise a ton of money and build all those engines out. So every company will tell you exactly what it's capable of and what it needs in order to grow. Very interesting. And sort of you've taken this sort of pragmatic approach then to each one of those companies trying to understand, okay, is this one we're going to uh, shoot for the moon or is this something that we really need to partner up and find uh, someone to help with grow and continue to expand with the right partner? You mentioned Churn Zero then. We started the episode, gave a brief intro. Tell us like how has all of this experience led to Churn Zero today? Is there any dots that connect the lines to Churn Zero and uh, what exactly are you doing? Yeah. So a lot of lessons from Turn, a lot of lessons from my entrepreneurship that led to Turn Zero. A few things that I would emphasize that I didn't think about when I started my first company. One was probably, I'll just talk about the lessons. One lesson is it is easier to build a product where 
your buyer has a budget for it. So that's one, right? So oftentimes people like build great product and in the end it's like, who's going to buy it? And if you have a target buyer in mind with that pain, that's super important. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, just like, it was interesting to build the thing I wanted to build. So one, so that's number one. Another lesson I learned was I love being first. I love innovation. My goodness, I'm a huge fan of innovation. I think that's easier to do in B2B, a B2C, but I think B2B being first is terrible. I think B2C being first is interesting. I think B2B being first, you better gear yourself for a long you know, time, right? Because you have to change the way companies work. You have to convince buyers to do something different and being first requires all that. I think that's really interesting. So I, that's another lesson I learned. And then I think another lesson, especially for B2B is if you can have an impact on ROI, if your product and service has an impact on ROI, that's what you really need to do. If you came along and said, hey, I'm going to be more productive, right? Like you can certainly do Slack is for productivity tool did really well, but I think it's harder for productivity tools, which doesn't have an ROI measurement, but it's harder to get started. Just to recap, be closer to the buyer, make sure there's, there's buyer. Being first is challenging. And then also have an ROI driven product. But those are the things that I've learned when I started TrendZero. Yeah. I've heard a few of these similar lessons as well. One of the ones I think on the budget that I loved as well was when I was working at Hotjar with David Dominant. One of the things he used to say was like, where are you on the budget list? And when times get tough, are you the first one out the door or are you the one that they absolutely can't get rid of? That's uh, right. So it's also thinking about through that lens, like it's like you say, it's tough though at the same time when you want to be building a product and really think you're innovative and stuff, but that sometimes it's not the most innovative solution that people actually really need and can't get rid of. It's sometimes more of the boring uh, plumbing that right. just you can't get out because otherwise your your building doesn't function without it or whatever. So that's right. How do you uh, help customers and how's the product unique? Yeah, so we're a customer success platform, and by Andrew, the customer success space is still a relatively new department, right? I kind of think it's the next great department in the, in the SaaS in the SaaS company, the subscription business company. And for a lot of folks, it's generally still a new. It's new to them, right? So it's either you're creating a department or you're trying to figure out best practices. And so, so we work with our customers to give them a system, a record for their customer success teams. But just like marketing has, they could be using. Marketo, HubSpot, and whatnot, and you know, salespeople are using uh, Salesforce. We want a, a department like customer success deserves its own platform, and so that's what we're building for them. You know how we're different. We're really focused on a. We're focused on growing mid market and growing enterprise companies, not the largest or large, which require probably have very special needs, a lot of internal systems. But if you're a cloud native company, right, growing quickly, that's, we built the product for you. And customer success platform, Andrew, as you probably know, we have to integrate with so many different pieces of data to get all your customer touch points. We have to understand all the customer touch points. So we know exactly how healthy a customer is. And then we have to like move them along on the journey so that they're successful. So if they're stuck, you got to do something. If they're doing really well, maybe you expand them. And so a customer success platform really helps you understand your customers and puts them down the right path so they have the, the best experience they can with you. Yeah. And what was the motivation then to start that business? So you gave the lessons and I think they obviously must tick those boxes there that you had, but what was it really that said, okay, this is the business I want to do next? Because the ask in the beginning, what keeps you going and you just yeah. had to. You know, at my last company, I was the um, 
I, I was a CMO first, and then, then I became a sort of a general manager, and then I inherited the CSMs. So I was the CMO of a, there's a large publicly traded company that bought my company. And as CMO, you have all this fantastic technology to help you manage your leads. So I knew my leads, they were opening up my email, they were visiting my site. They were going to my webinars and then I would score them and then hand them over to sales at exactly the right time with exactly the right next step. And all this just unbelievable technology that I had. And then when we closed one, that opportunity and they became an account and a customer, we passed them over to CSMs and nothing. It's like, okay, here's an email. Yeah, okay, CSMs, you have an email account, you have a phone. Okay, you get to use Salesforce, go get them. Go, have, go make them happy, go make them successful, go renew them. And when I saw sort of that, that, disparity between what the technology that was brought to bear on, on prospects and the lack of technology brought to bear on customers, I knew there was a real opportunity for us. It was crazy that we were treating our customers that way. And so actually my last company, when, when I noticed this, okay, we're going to build something. We actually looked at some of the vendors that were available at that point in customer success tech, but they were more still just dashboarding tool point and that just wasn't good enough we needed automation we needed in-app capabilities and so we built something internally uh, at that company and it made a big difference we actually took 15 percent uh, bite out of churn and then when i was ready to start my next company i thought what we did there was really interesting let's build something from scratch focused on this technology uh this sort of use case, right, of customer success. And that's what we did. And that's why I started Trend Zero. So it was a real need, right, at my last company, but it also built on a lot of the expertise that I had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I think from the name Churn Zero uh, as a product, like I often hear so on the show, people say, oh, let's focus on retention. Let's uh, flip the thing. Do you think the name Churn Zero aids you or it's uh, part, like stalls growth for you as well? And I'll tell you why, like my perspective yeah. of yeah. Churn Zero is... Mm-hmm. I, when I first heard about it, I imagined it to be a churn exit survey cancellation form uh, mm. type tool because there's a ton of them on the market, but it's clearly uh, not uh, that. So how have you found the naming and uh, the yeah. time? Yeah, look, I think naming is tricky, right? And names that work well at one stage of your company may not work well at the other you know, part of your company. One of the methods I have is like when you choose a name in the beginning, you can either choose a generic name, nobody like you say it and you don't know what it is. So there are lots of names like that. And then you have to really spend a lot of brand dollars on infusing the meaning into that name. So you just have you're working. So it's tough, right? Because whatever it is, nobody knows what it means. Or you can choose a name where everyone's, okay, I think in turn zero, people know what you do. And then at some point you may get pigeonholed and say, okay, now that I know what you do and you probably do more than that, are you pigeonholed into a certain category? We have that conversation here at Turn Zero all the time. Is like, hey, is it time for us to expand our name? And there are there are candidates. There are lots of examples where people do that. And there are examples where people don't. Like for instance, Salesforce is the biggest company in SaaS. And if you just think about it, it does way more than just imagining sales forces right now. So I, th- I think it's a always a good conversation to have, right? Because I think different name sort of archetypes work for you at different types. You either choose to accelerate in the beginning or you choose to have a brand that maybe can stand the test of time, but be harder to, to bootstrap and kickstart. Yeah. 
goes back a little bit more to that pragmatic approach and thinking about uh, what's working today versus uh, where the future is going to lie. I, by the way, I also, I also like to speak simply about things, right? So I'd rather just be blunt and say, hey, this is what, yeah. rather than I'm going to make you guess because my name is, let's just say that the name of my company is Happy. Then it's like, oh, what does Happy do? And are you this or that? It could mean a lot of different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I see we're almost up on time. So I want to make sure I save time for a couple of questions that I ask every guest. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario that you join a new company. Churner attention is not doing great at this company at all. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, you're on, like, we only need to turn things around. You're in charge. We only have 90 days. What do you do? The catch is you're not going to tell me I'm going to go speak to customers or look at data and figure out what the main pain points are. You're just going to take some tactic that you've seen be effective in reducing churn fast and run with that blindly, hoping it works at this point. Okay. So if you have 90 days and you have to make an impact on on, on the retention rate in 90 days, normally I would say, look, the, the best ROI is always at the beginning for uh, onboarding and implementation, but in 90 days, depending on your product, you may not have an impact on that. So I'm, and normally I would say implementation, but I'm going to skip that. I think most companies don't know where to focus, right? Like they're going to focus on every customer in order to increase the retention. If you are under the gun like that, focus on the folks who are on the cusp, maybe in, in this sort of customer success parlance, you can say these are yellow light customers. And so you need to be able to segment your customers really quickly to say who's really safe, okay? Who's fully red, they're going to turn no matter how much time you spend on them. And it's that sort of middle folks that you need to really work hard on to turn them from yellow to green. And so if you have 90 days and you need to add five points to your renewal rate, I think that's that's my suggestion for you. It's a quick fix, but maybe you make that quick fix to maybe then get budget to then focus on other things. So say focus on the yellow, make sure they're yellow and push them all in the green as quickly as you can. And over-service them, you no know, matter what it takes. Just get it done. And... Next question then is, what's one thing that you know today about channel retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Maybe I'll go back 10 years ago, but I think something that we all are learning about retention is really the power of revenue retention on the SaaS business. I think it took, I think we, I think the whole market went into subscription, the subscription economy, which I think is fantastic. But I think it then took another five years where people realized, oh, in order for my company to be healthy, right? I can't focus on just new logos. I have to focus on the retention of customers. I think all of us have been focused on new logos for too long. And if, if there was a great SaaS company starting out 10, 15 years ago that started that focus on renewal before they started on growth, they will have built an enduring, incredible company that will be healthier than all the companies that are out there. But just sort of realization, you know, that the SaaS metrics imply that net revenue retention is really the most important metric that you can have and you better focus on that. So if I had learned that above before everybody else, you would you would build such a fantastic company. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes to the nature of the business. I think you're running a subscription business. If people are canceling the subscriptions, you don't really have a subscription business. Um, I don't have a scripture business. Look, when it was when I was younger, when people cancel, it would be it would be a blow, like stomach punch, yeah. uh, and you just felt terrible. And those are good feelings to have, but in the end, if you do the math, you realize that it's not only a blow spiritually because nobody likes to lose a customer, but it's such a blow economically as well. And 
How that would be interesting as well. Like, how have you seen not sort of net revenue retention change in the market over time? So going back like ten years versus today, and maybe because you also you've raised capital in a few different companies now. How has this metric been seen one in the market and then two by investors? Like, has there been an evolution in the way it's been measured and tracked? And yeah, yeah. I started my first subscription business in 1999, so this was you know before the dot com bust, and uh, and I've raised money on subscription businesses many for decades now. And back then, like, <laughs> it was all about growth. And so the i the the question from investors interested in your company, the question about retention. Never came up until deep into due diligence, and as due diligence is after they give you a term sheet where they they say they want to invest in you, and then they start doing their diligence and making sure your company is in good shape. And generally, six meetings after your first meeting where they're like, "Oh, by the way, how's your retention?" That was sort of the conversation, and you may not even know. You're like, "Well, I kind of think it's this," and everyone's like, "Okay, that's fine," because everything else was they were investing in their, their eyes were on something else. And so that was in that's back probably in the early 2000s, and then by the probably the late 2000s, the early late knots, if you will, 2009, it was it was on a spreadsheet, right? Oh, oh, take a look at your dashboard. It must have been row, I call it row Z. That's where the NRR was. And then now it is the second question they ask is, okay, how's your growth? Oh, your growth. Oh, that's really great. How's your NRR? Oh, okay. And if it's and if it's not good enough. It's what now I'm calling, Andrew, a qualifying metric, right? So NRR is a qualifying metric. And that is, if it's not good, if it's bad, nothing else matters, right? Like you can say, I'm growing 300% a year, but if your NRR is not good, your investor will not invest in you. It has to be good enough. And then everything else has to be really good. But if it's not good, people simply will not invest you anymore. So it's a qualifying metric that gets spoken about in the first five minutes of a conversation rather than later in the stage. Yeah, definitely has changed a lot over the last five to 10 years. And it is like you mentioned as well, it's one of the most important metrics. Like I think it's the most important metric in a SaaS business is really understanding, are you retaining customers? Are you actually building a subscription business at the end of the day? And I think if you're an entrepreneur starting out, like you're not, NRR happens at the end, it happens later, right? You have to get your customer now and, and it happens later. But my goodness, if you don't focus on getting a customer happy with a good customer success team right away, like that later is going to, that later happens quickly. And, and many investors will wait. Many investors will say, hey, you started it. I don't know if having product market fit doesn't mean that you can sell customers. Having product market fit is when you can keep customers. And I think that's an important distinction you have to really think about. And that's changed a lot. I think is what you mentioned now is an important note though, is that like when you're just getting started out, like growth is really important as well. So although I really believe like uh, net revenue retention is critical, if you are going to have an unrealistic amount of churn to begin with at the beginning while you're still figuring things out, while you're working on your activation, on your onboarding, trying to increase these adoption metrics. But Keeping it in mind that it should be the focus is retention. You can still get away with losing customers in the meeting just to actually fuel on the fire to get going as well. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Like different stages of a company, the, the expectations change, right? In the beginning, you are trying, I'm selling to a lot of different companies. And so you, if you have a story and say, hey, look, we found it. We found this core, this ideal customer profile, and these folks are going to stick with us, and that's how we're focused on. And so this is a group that we were experimenting with, and we're going to churn through them. That's a good story to tell. 
Yeah. But if five years into it, you're still turning hard, you yeah. do. Yeah, sure. Very cool, Iman. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Is there any final thoughts or uh, things they should, the listeners should be aware of uh, before we end today? One, great. Thank you for having me. As with most things, whether it's entrepreneurship focused or customer success focused, I, I think the hardest things that feel like impossible, it's always just a, you break it down into smaller pieces, things that you can do. Like your question, what can you do like in the next 90 days? And that's really how you conquer a bad, a bad retention metric in your company. That's how you start a company, just like little steps, all that up to big steps. That's probably the, the final word I would have on, on just trying to do something interesting and something big. Very cool. And for listeners, we'll definitely make sure we have all the uh, links to anything we mentioned today in the notes. So if you want to check out them, uh, you can do. Thanks again for joining today. You might have been a pleasure having you and I wish you best of luck now in this new year. And thanks for having me, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.